morning. I am painkillers. I apologise. Friday, March 2nd, 2018, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Broken Human Being, and with me today is Gordon Derrick, my fellow Dutch News Contributing Editor and Owner of Broken Things. Our third musketeer, Paul Peters, isn't here because he fell through the ice while he was skating on the canals. Yeah, is that true? No, it's not. He has an <laughs> exam or something. Yeah, know, it's some it's, student. He's had some, yeah, some student thing. He's had a lecture arranged or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he teaches a bit of a snowflake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. God, the puns. I want to apologize in advance to our listeners. There are a lot of, like, really terrible puns. Also, okay. I wrote the introduction paragraph, and there's, like, six puns in the next paragraph. I'm just um, uh, I'm it's just bad. talking them now. It it's is terrible. It's, it's awful. Really so, advance bad. warning there. I think we, uh, we've got a code orange for puns this yeah, week. I think. we've definitely, definitely got a code orange yeah, for puns. Um, so, Molly, we need to get the fire up the violins as well, I think, because uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, tell us about your breakages. I'm a really, like, broken person this week. <laughs> So I have a, I have, I'm finally over this head cold, but I spent the first few days with a head cold. Then, uh, as we discussed on the podcast last week, there was a bunch of scaffolding around my house and I managed to, the other night when I was trying to take the recycling out, walk into one of the scaffolding bars and basically like smash my face against it, which produced like a black eye and like a decent sized lump on my head. Yeah. And then on Wednesday I got like, I developed a pinched nerve. And so I spent Wednesday and Thursday, like just not being able to walk at all. Um, and that's aside from all of my usual litany of like emotionally broken problems. Yeah. yeah. But on the plus side, you've got some really good drugs that have, um, sort of turbocharged your, uh, your writing apparently. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Although maybe we shouldn't, <laughs> we were, uh, we were discussing <laughs> the fact that I had written some articles yesterday and they got some very positive receptions, which I was confused by because I was on a lot of painkillers yeah. and like really wasn't thinking straight. Yeah. So yeah. So, so tip for any writers out there, use codeine. Yeah. It's codeine. It's, yeah. it's good for yeah. him. Okay. And you, uh, you're... I'm not the only thing that's broken because you have a few things that are broken, don't you, Gordon? Uh, well, I have them. The main thing that's broken is my car. It just um, went to pieces while I was out on the literal pieces. Um, look, thankfully not. But the uh, the radiator blew up while I was heading out on the motorway. Um, it's school holiday week, so the children were the grandparents. I was off to fetch them, and yeah, the radiator just burst. So I had to manage to sort of hobble home um, uh, after yeah, I had to restart the car two or three times. Got home, and uh, now it's sitting in the garage. So I don't have a car. And Did it uh, just decide else? it was too cold? It just decided it was too cold. It wasn't having any of it. Yeah. Uh, it refused to go out to Hardevike. It, yeah. it, it, it just wasn't having it. It just threw a fit, basically. Yeah, that's yeah. A, I can understand. Yeah. This week, we'll tell you about how things have cooled down in the Netherlands, heated up for Geert Wilders, and the burning desire of one man to become a prince. But that's just our warm-up. In the discussion, Gordon will get fired up over the referendum law. Temperatures dropped to record lows this week, as I'm sure everyone living in the Netherlands has noticed. February 28th was the coldest February 28th in recorded history, hitting minus 2 degrees at the built weather station. Weather Bureau KNMI called for a cold yellow due to freezing temperatures and icy conditions. This, of course, made the commute to work easier for everyone because the canals had frozen over. Yeah, so everyone skated to work this everyone week. Everyone skated yep. to work, as Katie Couric uh, informed us before the Olympics. Okay. Yep. Um, so what's made it so cold? Called yeah. the beast from the east, called a polar vortex, called the Siberian invasion. Basically, winds from Siberia pushed east. Undocumented winds who refused mm. to integrate, I might add, and they uh, dropped the temperature. Yeah, uh, although it's been considerably worse uh, just uh, over the water in, in the UK where they've had about sort of two or three feet of snow in some places and yeah. everything's just like ground to a standstill. And the, the entire countries have ground to a halt. Yeah, the Russians should <laughs> stop meddling in elections and just start trying to like... Uh, just uh, export their weather. Export their weather yeah. because then it'll, it'll ruin everything. Indeed. And is there any good news for anybody? 
Uh, there is if you're an energy supplier. Yeah, or if you've got shares in an energy company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Usage has increased 15% in the Netherlands over the last few days. Uh, I suspect ice cake manufacturers and hot chocolate makers have also done quite well. But while the beast from the east may have spared the Netherlands a savaging, someone who was busy whipping up a storm in Russia this week was Geert Wilders. The PFFA party leader was in Moscow on a visit to promote partnership and friendship between the two nations. Builder said he wanted to stem the tide of what he called hysterical Russophobia in his home country. He visited the Russian parliament, the Duma, met two members of the International Affairs Committee, one of whom was a former world chess champion, Anatoly Karpov. But his visit angered relatives of the victims of the MH17 plane crash, who accused Wilders of being a pawn in Vladimir Putin's geopolitical power games. What is it with, like, weirdly fascist people from Western countries going and buddying up with Russia? It's spooky, isn't it? Yeah, because Wilders actually was... Um, you remember a year ago, the, uh, the sort of new right uh, parties across Europe held this conference with, like, the AFD in Germany and uh, Marine Le Pen's uh, party. And all of them had been on visits to Russia, with the exception of Wilders. So he's kind of catching up now with his, uh, with his friends. So what were the, uh, the victims of the MH17 plane crash uh, the families uh, particularly aggrieved about? Uh, well, obviously, in general... Uh, um, they're, they're aggrieved that uh, the role that Russia's played in the MH17 investigation in the fact that evidence has been very, very slow to trickle out uh, of Russia and there's been all kinds of what you might call kind of preemptive um, speculation in that every time there's a development in the case and the Dutch safety board who are carrying out this very... Um, long-running investigation, have a press conference, the Russians call up a conference and throw out all kinds of kind of wild conspiracy theories that later on turn out to have no substance, but on the day it manages to kind of, you know, divert the news agenda a bit. So the families aren't happy with that, but particularly in this case, what they didn't like was that Wilders posted a picture on Twitter of himself wearing a, um, uh, a friendship pin. Gordon, which... what is a friendship <laughs> pin? A friendship pin, which was the two flags of the Netherlands and Russia sort of um, entwined together. So like a the, friendship? Okay. Um, and he wore it, and he, and, and he stuck a picture on Twitter saying how proud he was to be wearing it. But um, the families were less impressed with this. Uh, Selena Friedrichs, whose son Bryce died with his girlfriend in the disaster, said Wilders' behaviour was, quote, an affront to the relatives. While Kurt Wilders may be more comfortable with the title Prince of Darkness, another man is getting comfortable with the title Prince. A court granted Hugo Kleinstra the right to use the title Prince this week, the new prince is the son of Prince Carlos, the nephew of the former Queen Beatrix. Klinstra's mother, Brigitte Klinstra, had a relationship with the prince, and when she became pregnant, her and Carlos agreed that the baby would receive no royal title. Their son, however, disagreed and challenged this in court when he turned 18. Now the court has ruled that he can officially be known as Prince de Bourbon de Parme and be referred to as Your Highness. I think I had a glass of Prince de Bourbon de Parme the other night. It was really nice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it sounds yeah. excellent. It sounds like a really nice aperitif. Yeah, it? exactly. <laughs> or like a, a you know... A, a or like a sort of amuse-bouche that you have just before the main meal. Exactly. Yeah. But this does not make him an official member of the Bourbon de Parme household. Okay. Uh, does this mean that uh, the new prince is going to get more money from the taxpayer? No. So the anti-royalists can, uh, can not, not complain too much. Um, he is not officially a member of the royal household, which requires a royal decree. So he can insist that people call him a uh, prince in bars, but he doesn't get much more than that. This month, the Netherlands is chairing the United Nations Security Council for the first time in 18 years. Dutch representative Karel van Oosterholm said the priorities would be prevention, modernising peace operations and accountability, which is probably what everybody says. The Dutch are also expected to push long-term threats to global stability, such as water and food shortages. But in practice, the agenda is likely to be dominated, as usual, by the civil war in Syria and Donald Trump's tweets about North Korea. Former diplomat Hermann Schaber told NOS that the job was mostly crisis management because, quote, you can't solve the world's problems in four weeks. You can't? 
Apparently he's not. Wow, no. that's really going to ruin him. my to-do list for April. I know. I, I was really looking forward to doing that uh, in, in May. So we've managed to send someone to chair the UN Security Council, but we still are missing one half of our foreign ministry duo. Indeed, we've only got one. So we've got a junior foreign minister, but no, an empty chair yeah. in, the, in, in the main office. But since the resignation of Halber Zylstraff, we're pretending to be in a meeting with Vladimir Putin. Perversely, though, it's turned out quite well, because the acting foreign minister, Siegfried Kach of Desa Sestef, actually has experience of working at the UN um, and has uh, held several positions there and knows the territory very well. Um, it looks as if she'll be carrying on as acting foreign minister for a while because the FFAD are having real problems coming up with their replacement. Um, former health minister Ed Schippers and experienced MP Hunton Brucker, who were seen as the front runners, have both ruled themselves out and it's thought to be too early for a return to the fold for former defence minister Janine Hennis-Plassard. It's school vacation for the kids, so lots of Dutch families are traveling, but they aren't the only ones heading out. The Girl with the Pearl Earring, the famous painting by Johannes Vermeer, is making a trip as well. But like a Dutch family on a ski holiday to France, she isn't going very far. A research team plans to use new equipment at Moritz House to examine the painting. According to Avi van der Vera, leader of the international research team and picture restorer at the Moritz House, they have a lot of questions, but the main area of focus is on how the paint ages. So it's just off display until they've uh, finished the job? Sort of. It's now part of an exhibition called The Girl in the Spotlight until March 12th. The ongoing research will be displayed to the general public so you can see both the painting and the work of the experts. Mm. In sport, the Dutch Winter Olympic team came back from Pyeongchang this week, clutching 20 medals, which comfortably beats the target of 15 that they set themselves before the competition. All the medals came in speed skating, including two in short track, and eight of them were gold, which left the Netherlands fifth in the overall medal table. The last two medals came on Saturday in a new event, the Mass Start, with Koen Verwey and Irene Schouten winning bronze in the men's and women's events respectively. The skaters have earned over €400,000 altogether in prize money, with Irene Wust picking up €45,500 for her one gold and two silver medals. Not bad for two weeks' work. Yeah, not too bad. I wish I could get paid that much for two weeks' work. So uh, uh, there was a dust-up, there was some ophef with uh, Ivanka Trump. So what was uh, Esmea Visser doing with uh, Ivanka Trump at the uh, Olympics? I'm not sure about the ophef, but uh, yeah, for some mysterious reasons, Esme Visser, um, who was the winner of the 5,000 metres on the long track and won a real prospect for uh, the future, was seated next to Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka, I'm sorry, Donald Trump's senior advisor, Ivanka Trump, for the must start. Um, and uh, yeah, the, so they sat together and Fisser ended up sort of explaining how the event worked, which is uh, pretty creditable because if you've watched it, it's absolute chaos on the ice. Um, and Fisser said, quote, she didn't really understand what was going on, so I explained it to her a bit, a statement that no doubt struck a chord with diplomats all around the world. Uh, presumably, Fisser also told Trump to watch out for the orange guys, which again would have resonated with the uh, Ivanka's experience of politics. And you, uh, you complained about my terrible introduction <laughs> paragraph. We'll be discussing the referendum law to end all referendum laws after this word from our sponsors. Here in Holland is a new podcast for internationals living in the Netherlands. It is a twice-weekly podcast which focuses on the stories of internationals and expats. The podcast covers topics from manners to chance encounters, and they interview the Dutch and non-Dutch alike to get their insights, advice and stories, ranging from the funny to the sad. Here in Holland is currently creating an entirely crowdsourced podcast and welcomes your submissions. You can send your stories via WhatsApp. Find more information on their website, www.hereinholland.com. The podcast is available in iTunes and other podcasting apps. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. This week we're talking about Gordon's favorite topic, 
Referendumception. This is the first in a two-part series. This week we're going to discuss the referendum law and the abolishment of the referendum law. Next week we will discuss the so-called slate vet referendum, which will take place the same day as local elections. So Gordon, this has been like your favorite topic to rant and go on and on about. <laughs> Why are you so fascinated by the referendum law? I think ranting might be a bit extreme, but it's, uh, it's a curiosity, I think, because this referendum law came in um, about two years ago, uh, when the idea was to have an advisory referendum, which, uh, after a law has been passed, um, you can then, if you get enough signatures, so many signatures, you can then trigger a referendum on whether or not uh, people accept it. But it's only advisory, so the government then doesn't isn't bound to repeal the law. But this is kind of the culmination of about around about half a century's sort of uh, discussion and debate and endless um, talk about there should be more direct democracy in the Netherlands because there isn't a huge amount of direct democratic participation. You have general elections for the lower house of parliament but then the upper house is indirectly elected and of course the government, the cabinet is, is basically appointed but based on the um, election results. So there's been a lot of talk um, about whether we should have things like elected mayors or referendums and but every time that they've tried to actually introduce it, it hasn't, it hasn't really worked. So there was, they tried to introduce elected mayors about 10 years ago and it all fell through and now they're talking about they've kind of revived that idea and maybe now we're going to get another law for elected mayors and referendums particularly there was a lot of talk about having either advisory or binding referendums uh, the d66 party which was established in 1966 and one of its core principles was that they wanted to have more participation in democracy so this has been going on for half a century d66 were the party that brought in this referendum they ended up also being the party that then abolished it because they tried it out once on the ukraine law and we'll talk about that in a minute and none of the sort of established parties really could kind of get to grips with the, with the result so they said right this hasn't worked we're now going to scrap it and so now we're kind of back to square one really yeah. so the main push behind this has come from the d66 as you mentioned the party itself was even like formed around the ideas of having more participation in democracy mm. they've also proposed directly electing the prime minister directly electing mayors as you said i i find that the fact that the mayors aren't elected here so weird um and it's a really it, obscure system for appointing mayors yeah, as well it's very I mean, strange yeah and, and the mayor is not is often from a completely different party from the biggest parties on the council yeah. so for example rotterdam right now has a, has a labor mayor even yeah. though you know the labor party is you know it, it has crashed in rotterdam the right. last kind of a decade or so. Um, so they they put this proposal forward to to be able to have non-binding referendums, meaning that like you could vote, but the government isn't obligated to do that. And mm. they also put some other restrictions in place. You can't just have a referendum about anything. Like you yeah. can only have it about oh. laws that have already passed, and then it's about the specifics of those laws. Yeah. And it work. can't be on things like tax either. And uh, yeah, yeah, they and, put and some and more restrictions yeah. on that. So they've had one referendum, yeah. uh, and how did that go? What was it about? So what happened was that the referendum ended up being on uh, Ukraine's accession treaty with the European Union, whether or not the Netherlands should sign this treaty, which obviously is a thing that everyone had really strong views on. Yeah. Um, and so at the at Netherlands at that point had already agreed to sign the treaty, yeah. and now we were having a referendum on whether they should not, not do this, which just sort of as a side note is kind of terrible planning because in terms of like foreign and in international relations, it's not good if your country is like, we're going to sign this treaty. And then like six months later, they're like, actually, yeah. we have to unsign Exactly. You go, treaty. hang on a minute. Actually, we've got a problem here because um, someone's decided that we need to put this to a vote. Right. But the, this, the referendum sort of passed, failed in terms of people voting. The referendum was a vote against. A so vote against. it was success for the people who, who, who called the petition for the referendum. Right. Because, yeah, obviously, inevitably, when you have a petition... I think this is part of the, the problem with the way this referendum was set up. You know, when you call a petition, it's by campaigners who are against the law. Right. So then they're going to they immediately have the kind of the initiative and the and the momentum. Right. And there was also a lot of people because this was, of course, the first referendum. I remember there was a lot of discussion about how this was like 
stupid and so like did you go and vote against being against yeah. it so like in favor of the ukraine treaty or did you not vote at all because there was a lot of people who were arguing like we don't like this referendum system and so if you participate in this it's yeah. like even if you're voting against what they are campaigning for yeah. you're so still voting, giving yes. credence to the entire concept of the referendum which yeah. people didn't want to do also it was like held not in time with other elections and so it was like kind of a weird turnout situation um, and so what did the government do with this information? First of all, I mean, they had the referendum and there was a threshold limit. So you have to get 30% turnout for the result to, to be valid. And they did. They got 32% of the electorate took part in the referendum. So it was a, it, it was a valid result. And it was a 62% no vote yeah. against the treaty. Suddenly, there's a government in this really awkward position, as you say, because they, they've agreed with the other 27 European Union nations that they're going to sign this treaty that gives uh, Ukraine basically sort of a path to get into the European Union at some later date but then now they've got they've got to go back to their international partners and say actually um we've got to we've got a problem because we've had a vote against it that means they have to at least take the law back to parliament and have another debate about it yeah. and discuss whether or not they want to either abolish it well that's not really practical or amend it or do something with it and in the end it took about six months and uh this is obviously during the dutch eu presidency as well so it's very very awkward in all kinds of ways right and uh, mark Rutte eventually i think came up with some kind of compromise where there were a few slightly stronger conditions that uh, ukraine had to abide by in order to get into the european union uh, but effectively you know they still went ahead and signed the treaty so of course at that point the opposition parties and all the people who who backed having the referendum in the first place say look you're just ignoring the will of the people so you know, there's a huge amount of offer about it. So, yeah, so six months were taken up, really, with this sort of diplomatic skirmish, trying to kind of placate or acknowledge the referendum result in some way, but actually coming up with a solution that's very, very cosmetic, doesn't make a big difference, and really just stirs up a lot of kind of op-hef about elected politicians aren't listening to the voters. Right. So they had one referendum, mm. and now they're getting rid of the referendum. And now they're scrapping the referendum. But there's yeah. going to be another referendum first. Well, there is going to be a referendum about what's called the slave vet, which uh, I'll talk about later. But um, the other thing, of course, that the uh, people who want to keep the referendum want to do is have a referendum on whether or not to abolish the referendum. Right. Uh, so now, this is the referendum section. <laughs> this is the referendum section. So. The DCC6 Interior Minister, Kaiser Ollenkren, who's uh, in charge of steering this through, has put a clause in saying specifically you cannot have a referendum on abolishing the referendum. And that's been backed in principle by the Council of State, which is the country's highest administrative court but you know there are still uh, a lot of academics and politicians arguing that you can't really do that because the referendum actually doesn't come into force until at a later specified date or after right. it's gone through the whole process and in the course of that process towards the end of that process there is always an opportunity to trigger a referendum right. which you know and that option will still be open because the new law hasn't come into force yet yeah. so you, you can, what they're trying to do is sort of warp the concept of space and time right. effectively where they're trying to say that a law has come into force saying you can't have a referendum on this even though law hasn't actually come into force yeah okay so to try to unpack this <laughs> referendum section yeah the law that exists right yeah. now yeah. says you can have referendum on a matter that has already passed through the parliament. That's yeah. the only point that it's a referendum... It's passed through the parliament, but it hasn't actually been enacted, enacted and into law. Into right. law. Yeah. So you can't, you can't now have a law, a referendum against, like, oh, murder should be legal because yeah. that's already, like, a law that's... It's already been on the statute be. book right. for years and years, yeah. yes. So you can, during this process, say, okay, we would like to have a referendum. You have to garner a whole a, a number of signatures. There's, there's some administrative stuff you have to do. Yeah. So in the steps to remove this referendum law <laughs> they've put forth a new law yeah and that new law says no more referendums mm -hmm. and you can't have a referendum 
on this referendum law. Yeah, exactly. So the government says this is fine. They've they've tested this with some some courts through some they, judicial They tested procedure. it with, with the kind of the top administrative court. Which yeah, is have said state. that this is yeah. okay. Yeah. But there's other people who say, wait a second, this law is coming into effect under the, the current referendum exactly. law, which says you can have a referendum on yes. this. So there's been some push to have a referendum on mm-hmm. whether or not we should abolish the yeah. referendum law. Basically to call a referendum before this law has actually come into force, and therefore you can't apply a law that isn't yet in force, yes. even if there is a clause in it saying you can't have a referendum. Yeah. It looks very likely, I would think, uh, almost inevitable actually, that this is going to end up in court, court. basically. Yep. Someone's going to challenge this, and there'll have to be a ruling, so it, it might well get snared up in the, in, in the court system. It's all a bit of a muddle, really. It's a great big Mess. Yeah. And of course, it's, it's absolute grist in the mill of populist parties, and it's easy it's easy headlines if you're the kind of party that says, you know, that the whole establishment is not listening to you, the people. Right. So why is it that they decided that they wanted to abolish this referendum law, especially since this is coming from uh, the D66, who wanted this referendum law in the first place? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think D66 is saying they were on the pro side in the last referendum, so in other words, they were in favour of signing this treaty with Ukraine. And obviously, so, so the referendum result went against them. So the argument is that DC6, once there is actually a referendum and they don't like the result, they want to scrap it. And I think their argument is that yeah, the mechanism that they set up wasn't good, it was flawed, um, it didn't work. And um, I, I kind of tend to see the point here. I, I kind of think the problem with this referendum, the way it's set up, is that it's because you have the vote after the law has been passed, it's a very sort of reactive thing. You know, it's just a straight binary decision. Do you like this law? Yes or no? And because it's all started by having a petition, it tends to play into the hands of well-organized anti-campaigns. Yeah, yeah nobody's having a referendum, like, in favor of yeah. a law, right? Like, it's always Basically, people yeah. who are against the There's law. There's always people who are against it. And it's very easy to say we're against this law without having any obligation to put forward an alternative or right. suggest improvements. It's just very blank, black and white, yes or no. And yeah. Although it seems like it's a kind of democratic process, it doesn't really give people much participation in democracy. All they can really do is just stick to fingers up to the government over a law that they don't like. Right. And also so, a lot of this information I think that you get on these referendum things you can also get through just like polling data. I mean the government ministers look at polls and they know that like this is unpopular, this yeah. move is unpopular, the people don't want this kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. And also opposition politicians can pinpoint, you know, issues that where are unpopular and where they're likely to score score points. Right. And it's an easy hit you if you set up if you just set up a no campaign yeah. and then campaign against a law and really just put the all the onus and the responsibility on the government to to then deal with the problem. So it's a it's an opportunity to create maximum disruption. Are you opposed to referendum laws because of you're still burned by Brexit? <laughs> well, yeah, Brexit is good. I think it's kind of in, in the same school of thing where people are just uh, invited to say no to something yeah. without sharing the kind of responsibility for actually what happens next. Yeah. I think it's the same thing. I'm not opposed to referendum laws. I think this was not a good referendum law because it doesn't actually give you any real participation in right. the democratic process. Yeah. So, you know, what happened was, in the end, the No campaign and the, re- the Ukraine referendum quite specifically chose an issue that would make things really, really awkward for the government right. and put them in actually an impossible position. And also the fact that you have to basically a yes-no result. We basically say that, you know, 50% of of a vote of 30% of the electorate is, is a definitive decision. It's the will of the people. That, to me, is not really a Dutch way of doing things. Yeah. That, to me, d- doesn't really belong in the in, in the Dutch democratic system, which is all about minority groups or parties that represent usually no more than 20-25% of the electorate getting together in coalitions and doing deals right. and making agreements that everyone can live with. So you are an also, and you're not in favour of this this referendum law. I'm I'm actually, I think, almost like on the fascist side of things. I am completely opposed to referendum law, um, in, in no small part because of the disaster that's happened with Brexit. But I agree with a lot of what you said, that like most referendum laws 
don't exist in such a way that people actually get to make good nuanced decisions about this because you're just like voting on these one-off things. It's kind of like yes or no. This is why the model of electing politicians to go represent us and like be able to make these compromises, you know, they, there's lots of places in the U.S. where they've put in referendums about raising taxes. And of course, nobody ever wants to raise taxes, but it comes at quite a cost. Schools are underfunded or like services and fees have to go up in order for the, for the government to be able to provide for basic services, which like disproportionately drives up the cost and say low income people, right? Like if you have to now spend $500 to tag your car instead of, you know, the hundred dollars because the government has to make, you know, some money to be able to repair the roads, but you can't now make it at a proportional amount to the person making a hundred thousand dollars a year pays more. So overall, I think it's really, really terrible. I I was particularly, I think, turned off by this because there was a lot of referendum in the U.S. about whether or not gay marriage should be legalized. And this is just a thing that I think, like, you should just not be able to vote on, you know, stir up a bunch of discord about, like, people's basic human rights. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they've had the same thing in Ireland recently. They've had referendums about uh, abortion. Abortion. Because abortion's in the Irish Constitution. Yeah. And any constitutional change has to be be put to a referendum. Referendum. Yeah, and there's been all kinds of, yeah, sort of quite bitter campaigns about it. Yeah, And, like, you know, to be honest, honest i'm not a a foreign diplomat like i don't really understand what the ramifications are of like letting the eu into some sort of treaty so you're relying on you know in the same way that like i don't try to fix my own toilet when it's broken right that you call in an expert you hope that the government puts forward some people who are really smart on this issue to make good decisions and Mm. if you don't like them or you think that they're choosing the wrong people who have like zero say, experience with foreign affairs and make up uh, uh, meetings with uh, with Putin, then, you know, they, they, they have to go. And then yeah. hopefully you get somebody in charge that, that, that knows what they're talking about. I mean, I don't think it's yeah. a perfect system, but I definitely think it's better than, like, this direct democracy no, system. I, I, I tend to agree with you, and I think that that is kind of the essence of democracy, that you, you choose the government that um, yeah, that is in charge of the country and you hold yeah. them to account. And you have elections regularly, but they have the expertise, they have the knowledge, and they know actually how lawmaking works right. and how diplomacy works better than you do. Yeah. So, yeah, like you say, you, you point somebody who's actually got knowledge and expertise of these things uh, to do the job most of the time and having just constant referendums on particular issues it kind of fragments the whole process right. and yeah it, it, it does kind of erode trust because yeah. eventually you know, the, the politicians then serve a result which although it's advisory in theory and in, in nature effectively you know there is a great expectation they will actually change the law to reflect right. this uh, this outcome and on this particular referendum I think as you say I think it's really revealing that this was chosen as a subject when let's face it very few people I think really before this referendum had strong views about whether or not Ukraine should have this succession treaty, treaty which would mean right. that some notionally at some later date they might get a chance to join the EU right. very few people really thought about it very much right. it's not you know something that plays a big role in your average person's day-to-day life and yet suddenly you're asked, asked to make a decision and of course the campaign wasn't about the nuances and the ins and outs of the treaties very much at all it was just literally as the campaign is admitted just before the vote it, they just wanted people to say no to the EU yeah Blankly, like that, which is the same thing I have with Brexit. Right. Brexit was just about oh, say no mean, to the EU, say you don't like the EU. You mean not they about just put a, they just put a slogan on the side of a bus that was <laughs> turned out to not be so true, and that was the uh, the campaign. Some strategy. people have said that. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. can't imagine. So next week we're going to be talking about the slate wet referendum. So can you just give us a quick like what's what's exactly coming up with this? Yeah, so the slate vet is um, uh, a name, a controversial name for a law that uh, has been passed and uh, is due to come into force in May, which gives the security services, the IFA day and the MFA day and much wider powers to tap internet traffic and um, all the the emails and your telephone conversations and all the rest of it. Uh, this is actually a thing, you know, to be fair, that it is going to affect people's day-to-day lives and your personal privacy. So it's a thing that's actually relevant uh, to people much more so than Ukraine. But basically what they say is that the old law, which dates from 2002, isn't sufficient any longer for security, for the security services, because you, know, you, you can't tap into like uh, phone cables, right. which is where most 
internet and telephone traffic uh, works these from. days. But you know, people who are against it say that it goes too far because you can potentially apply to to monitor a very broad scope of internet traffic. So initially, and then sort of filter out the bits that aren't relevant. So for example, if you thought that somewhere in in your neighbourhood in Delft there were a couple of terrorists talking to Syria, you could ask to have you know, your whole street tapped into, and then they could just go through all the everyone's data and 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 then just discard all the, all the stuff that was perfectly innocent. Right. And campaigners say this is basically like a dragnet right. sleep threat, where you, you basically you gather up a huge amount of data and then just pick off the bits that you, that you don't need. But the danger is, of course, that you've then actually looked into information that people have shared who are doing who are doing nothing wrong, nothing illegal, and it right. kind of goes against the whole principle of presumption of innocence. Yeah. So we will be talking more in depthly uh, about that next week and, yeah. and, and how we feel about this, although it's, it's safe to assume that, that maybe Gordon and I are not in favor of having a <laughs> referendum after our discussion today. Maybe Paul will be pro-referendum and maybe. take the referendum side, although I, yeah. I suspect he's also not, a, no. not super pro-referendum. Yeah, but we'll discuss it anyway. Yeah, the... we're going to discuss it whether you... So the least then, if you take part in the referendum, you can make an informed decision. Exactly. That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. My thanks to Gordon Derrick and not to Paul Peters because he's not here today. I'm Molly Quell and we'll be back next week.